Find Your Faith with the Find Your Faith podcast. Here we are back for another episode of the Find Your Feet podcast and I can't thank you enough for tuning back in to listen to the stories, wisdom, tips and tricks from the incredible people that I'm able to bring here to the microphone. Today's podcast guest is no different and I really, really am excited about this conversation which I hosted up in Melbourne on a recent trip there. Quite a contrast for us both, uh, these two playful wild creatures sitting in the urban jungle in a hotel room in Docklands in Melbourne, but it was life and fate, I feel, that threw us together and this conversation really exceeded my expectations. Dr Patricia Bomer lives a mission in life to help us to live life fully, passionately and purposefully. And when I first encountered Patricia, actually through an email, uh, when she was inquiring about one of our Find Your Feet tours, I saw her tagline and her books listed in her email signature and I jumped onto her website and went, wow, I really, really need to get this wonderful woman behind the microphone. So there we were on a Sunday morning sitting in this hotel room, bouncing ideas off one another. Today's episode really is about finding purpose and ensuring that we're living a life which is true to our own values and not the shoulds of the society and friends and family around us. It's about motherhood and parenting, but whilst not losing your sense of wild adventures, it's about transitioning from one life to another, changing cultures, changing countries, and exploring and leaning into the the Uh, fear that can come with when you move from the comfortable to the uncomfortable. It's also about leaning into the deep intuitive self and listening to that and allowing yourself to step out of where you think you should be playing in the world to where you know you need to be playing and Patricia is definitely a woman who has lent into fear leaving behind a corporate career to pursue her own path in executive leadership coaching. I loved chatting with her. I felt like Patricia was able to hold a space for me as well to share the knowledge and um, and learning journey that I have been on recently. With a background for her in psychology, life coaching, organizational psychology, personal training, executive motivation, authoring books, radio presenting. She is one phenomenal woman. We also share a love of trail running and for Patricia she also found a love affair in the sport of adventure racing. She has a fascination with how um, or the mind-body connection and for me I have a fascination with the body-mind connection so we came together and um, through our thoughts around on this topic. Her recent, sorry, her two books that she currently has published at the moment is Akalina, uh, an inspirational book about a hero's journey or heroine's journey. And she also has a second book called In Pursuit of Joy. And as she titles it, Life Lessons from Exhilaration. I encourage you to jump onto her website and to have a look at these books. I think that you will get just as much out of them as I did. And I really enjoyed being able to discuss the writing journey in this episode. 
She has two more books coming out later this year, so keep in touch with Patricia and you will be able to stay inspired by her writing and her work. It really was so uncanny how many parallels Patricia and I have in our journeys. So I do think that you're going to feel that connection that we had in the room there in Melbourne and I really am excited about this episode. Before we jump straight into it, I just want to, again, take a moment to thank the team at Find Your Feet who work with enthusiasm and a sense of huge purpose to help individuals who are setting out on wild adventures. So if you need anything for your hiking, trail running or adventures even wilder than that, then lean across into www.findyourfeet.com.au or join us in Hobart or Launceston at one of our stores. We would absolutely love to help you. It's with um, almost sadness that I have to say that our 2020 tours are all but sold out. However, we have just released a new tour called the Alpine Tasmania Extreme Tour. So if you are a very adventurous soul and you would like to climb mountains and peaks in the wilds of Tasmania with us in November 2020, jump across to the website findyourfeettours.com.au or you can reach there off my own homepage. Finally, as you were probably aware, I have a number of resources for trail runners on my website, from blogs to the podcast episodes. Uh, you will find a lot there to inspire you. However, I just want to point your attention to my new, my newest training planner, which is a trail running marathon training planner. It's a six-month plan for just $24, and in it there will be detailed sessions, day-to-day -day detailed sessions for you to follow along with or just use simply as a structure to guide your own training. As you know, though, there's a plethora of training planners there from beginners planners right through to the challenging 100-miler. So I encourage you to jump across to my website, www.hannyalston.com.au, and you can find all those resources there. All right, that's enough from me. If you'd like to keep in touch with Patricia Bomer, don't forget to jump across to my website and you can download the show notes and also link to her own homepage. But it's with this that I want to take us straight into this conversation. Picture two inspirationally excited women sitting in a room, butting heads. This is a conversation with Dr. Patricia Bomer. I know you're going to love it. And yours was an example. I get this email from you. And first of all, I saw your email address. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what she does. And then I saw your signature. And it mentioned your book yeah. and your website. And so I just was like, curiosity got the better of me. And I jumped onto your website. And I was just like, really? This person has clearly got an incredible story. <laughs> and anyone who writes... It feels like that's an old story. But... <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Stories evolve, I guess. Yeah. But, yeah, anyone who writes and runs and plays and is a life coach and is into psychology and I was just like, this person is just someone I would love to meet. And that was kind of where the podcast came from was like, this I guess it was an excuse to tap people on the shoulder and say, hey, can, can I just have a conversation and cheer your ear off? And the other part of it was that I felt like often we kind of get into our own close circles mm. and yet we have a voice that is so um, powerful to so many audiences. And my first guest on the podcast was a classic example. Like he was a NASA scientist, was 
using a lot of his um, science skills, tracking bees all over the world, looking at the plight of honeybees. Um, you and, mentioned him in Trail Runner yeah, magazine. Yeah, he's been such a, I mean, he might be, hopefully he's still listening, but um, such a huge impact on me because of one, his humility, and yet he's just so extraordinary in what he does but also because he's so well known in what he does and yet so not known or less known on the outside. And that was where I felt like his voice and his knowledge kind of needed to be shared. And whilst I'm not gonna obviously reach out to the whole world, I felt like I could at least get his voice into a community that otherwise wouldn't come into connection with him. And that was a really, really cool conversation. And um, I've had two now with him actually. Um, even the growth that happened between the first one and the second one for him, both professionally, but also in his like running, play kind of outside. Oh, so he's lifestyle. a runner as well. Yeah, so he's got into ultra running as well. And that was really cool. So, yeah, so that's why I tapped you on the shoulder. Well, thank you. <laughs> it, it, I was kind of like, you know, when you feel something's about to change and yeah. then something happens like that, and you yeah. go, okay, I knew something was coming, but I didn't know what it was. Hmm. So I think when I reached out to you about the Tasmanian Extreme yes. adventure, which I'm... I still need to um, twist your arm a little. <laughs> oh, well, we'll talk about kids and how they make you juggle all of your own ambitions. Sure. Um, that's the main yeah. barrier to that. But I think I was looking for another, well, I'm always looking for another adventure, another way to kind of expand what I do but it has to fit in the context of the family as yeah. well. Yeah. And so I thought, oh, the last few years I've done so many events, but as the kids get more activities, events are harder. Mm. So I've gone, let me have real adventures that are more solo rather than this is a race. Mm. And that way I see the places, but it doesn't have to fit somebody else's schedule. Ah, uh, I see, yeah. And that's, that's always the challenge. There's a schedule set out but I've got to juggle this kid and that kid and this work and that work. And, you know, eventually it becomes so narrow, it's hard to fit in what I want to do. Mm. And that's just such a challenge that I see so many mums and dads, but mums especially making that, that juggle. And you work in life coaching as well, or you have a background in life coaching. Yeah. So I'm sure that that's a huge part of your work as well. Is that right? It has been. Yeah. Um, my work has kind of gone up and down, and this was always my plan. I knew when I had kids I couldn't have the corporate life, mm -hmm. that I wanted more from my family and for my family than that would allow. So when I became a psychologist, I thought, well, I can up it before I have kids, then I can reduce it, and then I can up it again. Mm -hmm. So it was always a conscious choice. Right now I'm in the reducing phase because my kids have significant needs mm. and you know where it goes next is kind of where I'm at I'm at a, a bit of a crossroads mm. and go this has been my passion for many years what's coming yeah can I like pull on that and then come back to your story mm. in a moment because there's been two comments that you've made but the first one that really resonated with me is that you feel like you've got to a point where you have this sense that something's coming but you're not really sure what it is and I've read both your books not fully fully through to completion of the novel and I know that you've got two more books coming so yeah. you said that you feel these happened a while ago like 
but I felt that they they were very fairly potent, especially is it Akalina? Is that yeah. how you say it? Akalina. So out of the woods, um, and you've got your key character in this book is Hallie, and she goes effectively on a quest. Um, I'm kind of curious because you made a comment um, in it. It is all about choices. It is all about choosing well and sticking with your good choices. I was like, wow, that's that's fairly powerful. And I wonder how you know what a good choice is and how, <laughs> how you make choice. Because um, even the other day I was having a conversation with my mum and I was talking about how I've been on adventures and playing and was really excited that I'd made this decision to go out and do this. And she's like, how do you know what makes your toes tingle? And how do you know what's what choice you should make when there are so many choices? And sometimes it feels like there's no choice. Mm. Uh, yeah. So I wondered if we could pull on that a bit. Oh, um, I think personally, I feel it in my gut. And I always know deep inside with, whether it's a good choice or not. I don't necessarily always make the good choice. <clears throat> And there are lessons that come with the bad choices as well, but always when I've been on the right track, it's okay in here. When I'm not on the right track, oh, definitely I feel it in my gut. Mm -hmm. And I feel it in my reaction to what's happening. Okay. Um, my first corporate job, I remember the boss and I, when I, he interviewed me, he said, you're really not qualified for this job, but I thought I'd interview you anyway. And in that moment, it was that sense of, this is not the right place for me. And I remember I left the interview and I was in high heels and all of that. And I took them off and I put on runners that I'd brought with me and I bolted. I seriously, in a suit, I bolted down the street. It was so wrong, but I took the job huh. because I knew that there was something there that even though it was wrong in that moment, there was something there that I needed to learn. Hmm. And it was going to be that almost a stepping stone to something else. But I had to make that really uncomfortable point to step off to where I needed to go next, if that makes any sense at all. Oh, it completely makes sense. And I just wonder how how we teach that, I mean, or, or help people to find that because that's our role. Like I, I've trained in life coaching and that the coaching journey is kind of the journey that I'm on at the moment. Um, and I, I just find that I find that probably the biggest challenge is how to help someone to know when to lean in, even if it's really uncomfortable and even if their gut's saying don't, and how to help someone to know when to go, hey, your gut's saying no, lean out, look around you, maybe there's another door that's opening that you haven't seen yet. And I, I find that just such a fascinating point. Um, I don't know if I'd change any of those wrong decisions I made. Yeah. So I don't know whether I'd coach that client to lean in or out. I'd say learn from whatever it is you've done because the wrong decisions are often what teaches you the most. That book, Akalina, came from a wrong decision. Well, I want, I was going to ask that. So how much of Hallie is... Um, <laughs> She's all me. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Yeah. Because you pulled in... Although I, I think it's me amplified yeah to be honest you take your experiences and then to make it interesting and readable you amplify okay it. 
So maybe for the benefit of anyone listening, could we maybe explain like a brief overview of who Hallie is and the journey that that unfolded in that book? And then maybe we can come back and parallel that a little with with some of your story, (laughs) if that's okay. If I can remember Hallie well enough, she was a while ago. Um, I think she came from a dream, actually, in in memory. I dreamt, you'll know Westgate Bridge. Mm. The story opens in Akalina that Hallie drives her car over a bridge. That was my dream. I was driving to visit my cat in Spotswood. And I dreamt when we first moved here that I drove off the Westgate Bridge. I made a mistake. And I never have forgotten this. I went flying in the air and I had that moment in my dream that I knew it was over. And I'd made this terrible mistake. And I dreamt that and I started writing about it. And my writing group said, oh, that'd make a really good book. And I went, oh, yeah. I sat down and wrote that book in probably four months, the first draft. Wow. Sat in my window seat in Hong Kong and just typed and typed and it just came out. I don't know where it came from, but it was a story that I needed to tell. Mm. And obviously it was set in all of the the places and the things that I was doing at the time. All of the trails, all of the running, all of that was real. (laughs) So those, the physical part, I could write really well because I was doing it. Um, The psychology part, I think I had fallen into a place where I was almost giving my light to someone else, where I'd met someone that I thought, oh, wow, that person is amazing. I really want to be close to them. Like a life partner? or No, just no. somebody that I was coaching with. Yeah. yeah. And without recognizing it, I handed over my power. Mm. And it turned dark. And I think in that phase of my life, you tend to find the same person over and over again until you resolve the issues you have with them. So before I met my husband, I dated all the bad guys. I dated all the guys who needed a lot of therapy. And I met my husband and he was unique and he didn't need therapy and he's happy. And I married him, but yet those same bad guys kept reappearing in my life, who I kept giving my power over to until when I started writing that book, I was like, something is off. What, what is it I'm doing wrong that I keep doing the same thing? And it wasn't until I wrote through it that I really understood what was happening. Yeah. So it was kind of a, an internal quest as well as a writing quest to figure out what, what, what's going wrong here. Mm. And I remember writing the end of that book, and I tried to kill off the bad guy in the book. And I realized when I wrote it, I couldn't do that. And I'm not going to give away the ending because that would ruin no, the book. No, please don't, please don't, because I'd I'd love I'd love to um in the show notes like link to the book because I I feel like it is a book that you need to read because in fact I feel like it's a book you need to read quite a number of times because you have so many layers to it and you can read it and it's just like an in somewhat an adventure story if you read it on its most superficial level, but um. If you read it with a thought process of what am I learning from this and what am I learning from this character, you realise there are so many truths in it. I think one of the things that you're sort of talking about there is that, um, have you ever thought maybe, maybe we need to buy a car, but you don't know what kind of car you need to buy and you're sort of hunting around, hunting around and you're like, oh, a Mini. Gee, I never really thought about buying a Mini. You've never seen Minis around anywhere. Anyway, I'll take the Mini for a test drive. 
and you jump in the Mini and you start falling in love with the Mini. And then you get back in your old car and you head off from the, you know, the, the test driving place and you jump back on the freeway or the road and all of a sudden you see Minis everywhere. And you're mm. like, why am I seeing all these Minis now? Like, this is a bit serendipitous, I think we say. Um, and isn't it about this concept, like you were talking about these sort of bad bad guys kept coming back into your world and you and they would keep coming back into your world until you addressed that kind of underlying issue that was there and I kind of liken it to buying the mini because so often I think unless we um so often what we see in people or what we attract is actually something that's a part of us that we kind of need to address in us. Or, yeah, of course. Or someone irritates you and you're like, oh, that person's so irritating. Well, the only reason they irritate you is that that irritates you and about something about you that you're irritated about, if that makes sense. I can't really explain that any better than that. But um, is that sort of what you found? That <laughs> It's hard to explained it's almost like I was attracted to a particular thing mm -hmm. in all of these people it was a need that I was fulfilling for them as a psychologist mm -hmm. and it wasn't until I actually became a psychologist that I started to recognize that dynamic that all of the people who I was bringing into my life I was trying to heal and then I went no that's not that's not my role in my personal life that's my work life mm -hmm. so I think that was part of it but I think at the phase I wrote Akalina, I was actually a little bit lost. We had moved to Hong Kong, and I'd had a really great life here in Melbourne, and I thought, oh, I just want one more adventure before we settle down. But Hong Kong was just this strange, concrete place, and I'm an outdoors, I need the woods, I need the beach, and I couldn't find it. And for a couple of years, I was in this kind of cold, um, unnurtured place, and I think I was looking for something. I didn't know what it was, but I was giving it to everybody else or finding it from other people until I found the woods, until I found adventure racing. And I think in a way, sometimes the bad guys lead you to where you need to go. Because you, you can go, oh, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And suddenly you go, ah, oh, wait, this is right. And you feel the distinction between those two things really clearly. Mm. So when I started adventure racing, I'd never really run in the woods. <laughs> and all of a sudden I'm in these coastal rocks off the coast of some island in Hong Kong and going, what am I doing here? Wait, this, I love this. And suddenly this new path opened that I wouldn't have found without the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And that person became sort of just incidental to what was happening in my life. <laughs> So do you think it was the adventure racing that you were meant to find or was it something that the adventure racing brought to you that um, gave you what you were looking for more on a, like a deeper level? So like the adventure racing sort of the superficial level and then there was something that you kind of needed from the adventure racing on the sort of deeper On the level. deeper level. Um, I think on the, the deepest level, up till that point in my life, my husband and I had done all of the outdoor stuff together. Mm -hmm. And at some point, he became unable to do that. And in that couple of years, I kind of went, well, if he's not doing it, how do I do it? Mm -hmm. And because we'd been together since we were 26, and now I was 37, it was like those grown-up years we'd spent adventuring and exploring, and suddenly my partner in all of it, he couldn't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I went, well, what do I do? 
how do I keep doing this? And I was a scaredy cat. I'm still a scaredy cat, but most things scare me. So when somebody said, come adventure racing, I was like, oh my God, I, I can't even get to the ferry by myself. I don't, I don't know how to do any of this. Because my husband and I had always done this together. And I just had to go, all right, I'm just going to do it. I'm scared to death, shaking on the ferry in Hong Kong. But I went there. And suddenly it was like I found that I could do these things alone. Mm. And that part of me that I couldn't do without my husband, I actually I could. And it was this amazing revelation. Suddenly I was taking taxis to the middle of nowhere in Sai Kung. Yeah. And running across rivers and climbing up waterfalls and going, I'm doing this. And I found that I could do it alone. And that door wasn't closed where I thought it was. And I think that was the source of a lot of the depression. I was like, oh, can't do any of this exciting stuff. But actually, now I can. Mm. Mm. And I think that's, that was what adventure racing gave me. It kind of opened the door to that outdoor life that had always been a part of me, mm. but that I'd lost in that period of time. Hmm. And that will no doubt resonate with so many people because I think that that is one of the reasons why that adventure racing and trail running scene became and is becoming so so big because it it opens an opportunity in a, in a relatively safe way to go and experience something that feels so unsafe or so um so different from particularly the urban world that so many of us have been surrounded by for so long and i think it's really exciting because it's we're seeing you know mums women you know young kids, older individuals, people who used to bushwalk but don't have the time for bushwalking. We're just seeing this influx of people into these sports that gets us back to kind of nature and grounding and earthing and just being out and playing like kids again. Like, yeah, and that's what yeah. it is. It's also the belief in yourself, Yeah. which you know has always been a challenge for me. But suddenly I'd find myself, when we moved back here, in fact, I went through a little phase like that where I couldn't go to the woods. I didn't feel safe here. Trail running finally came to Australia in mm. 2010. Mm. And I started doing events here and all of a sudden again that door opened. Mm -hmm. It took me a year or so before I'd go solo. And I'll never forget the feeling of being on Mount Dandenong with a map and my hydro pack all alone kind of trying to navigate for the first time and going, you know, where does that trail go? And, and all of a sudden you go, I can do this. <laughs> And you, I didn't believe I could. And then all of a sudden it had just become who I was. And I think that adventure racing and trail running, it's kind of the, the surface level, but the deeper level is who you become. Hmm. And, you know, I never expected to do half of the stuff that I've done. And if I look at it, like, oh my God, did I do that? Who was that? Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you have your other book that I've read so far. I'm so excited about the new books, by the way. Um, In Pursuit of Joy. And the tagline is Life Lessons from Exhilaration. <laughs> I just, I love that. But um, you had a, a quote in it that was, um, sometimes we build barriers in front of our progress. Then forgetting it was we who built them. We stand behind these barriers and judge them solid and insurmountable. And then you go on to say, you become someone new the moment you decide to break through a barrier. 
and I had down there is this talking about fear question mark so I'm guessing that that is coming from exactly what you're talking about that when you've lent into the fear and realized that you put that barrier of fear there and you go I find that personally that fear just is highlighting what's meaningful to you that when you lean into it and you break through that you come to the other side or a new world on the other side where you're like whoa like this is incredible and you grow inches yeah I'm sure a lot of that was fear as I said I'm scared of everything I'm scared of snakes and I'm scared of driving to new places and you know I'm scared of getting lost I have a whole list my next book is all about the things that scare me and how they happened I, I just <coughs> find that really incredible because for someone who's and I can't wait to go back into your story but who's done so much um, and so many races and careers and um, you've got you've adopted children like there's so many huge milestones that you've had I find it amazing that you say you're scared or you have a lot of fear in you like you're a scared person that's yeah yeah I guess my my favorite quote was when you're afraid profess courage and act accordingly <laughs> you know fake it till you make it <laughs> well just do it anyway yeah you know I felt a lot of fear and most of what I'm afraid of doesn't happen mm. so I, there's a part of me that just says, yes, you're scared. It stinks to be scared, but go ahead. You know, the fear, the not doing to me is worse than the fear mm -hmm. of what could go wrong. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm never going to be the one who doesn't do something. <laughs> and it's risky and I've got the scars to prove it. But, you know, like adopting kids, you just don't know how that story is going to turn out could mm. be great, could not be great, but mm. you know, you can't live life not taking the risks because mm. that's not living. No, no, that's putting yourself behind these barriers in a box. And my mentor um, who lives in Singapore said to me that uh, the person who rules the world is the one who has the greatest behavioral flexibility. Um, because if you have behavioral flexibility, you have choices. And if you have choices, you have freedom. And I really love that. I, I, it resonates in me all the time. I often think that, you know, is about how to increase our ability to have choice. Um, wow, that's very powerful. Yeah. I'm going to try to put that in my brain and keep that because that's probably one of my less strong skills. Yeah. I tend to kind of go, go the same way, the same way. And to break out of that pattern can be quite challenging. Mm. And she often also says that she has clients who come and say I have so many responsibilities um, whereas in they're talking about like I feel like I have I'm locked down and I can't move because I've just got so many responsibilities and she said you should revel in responsibility because when you have responsibility it's basically saying to us that we need to well we have choices about how we play out that responsibility and then when you have choices you have freedom Whereas if you have no responsibilities, then you really don't have any choices that need to be made and therefore you can have like less freedom. And I guess like, then you take that motto that's like, if you need something done, ask a busy person because I guess they're living with this responsibility. They're accustomed to making choices and therefore they are actually moving freely in their own world and creating their own world. I really love it because it, totally goes against the grain of thought of it does think. doesn't it because yeah. you think when you're you're the soul in the responsibility seat you have less choices mm. and I think that's true 
within that framework, you've got a lot of choices. Mm. And without the responsibility, somehow life wouldn't have the meaning. You know, I've got mm. two cats and two dogs and two kids and a husband. <laughs> and, you know, it's a constant juggle. But without that, I think I'd crumble. Yeah. Because I need all of those things. And then I need the bit of me that goes off and does my stuff. And then I can come back and keep doing the juggling. Yeah. And it's more than just filling up the time, is it? Isn't it? You know, as in, like, you don't have two cats, two dogs, two children, and a husband, and then, you know, your career's on the side just to fill up time and pass the days. It's oh, not no. that. It's, it's about a sense of purpose, isn't it? Like... The kid, the, that whole package is what I come home to that gives me joy. Mm. Without that, when I went off to Hall's Gap and did a trail race, there'd be nothing to come home to. Mm. You know, that's my center, that's my soul, the family. My stuff is, it's like the cream. It's the stuff that gives me joy. But I need the family as kind of the grounding, the base, the center, mm. if that makes sense. My work, it, my work is somehow it's not separate from me as a human being. I don't think of myself as I go do my work and then I come home to my family. Somehow it's all intermingled as one big <laughs> crazy thing. Mm. And how, because that resonates with me. I, I would say that I can't separate Kara Healy, Kara Healy, Healer archetype, the Hanny archetype, which is the Kara Healer from Hanny, like they don't separate. Hanny is Kara Healer and I find I'm always working whether I'm with friends or I'm not because that's just the archetype. And I'm, I guess, is that what you're saying? That you're just so intermingled in your archetypes and the work is just an extension of who you are as an individual. Yeah, I think that is it. That it's not a separate thing I go to do. Mm. It's who I am. Mm. And it probably filters into my life and my family as well in what I do with the kids and what I do to coach them and help them on their mm. way. So can we go right back? Because on paper you have so many asset skills and qualifications and I'm kind of, I'm a bit, I'm really curious to know how they all kind of came together because the one that jumped out at me, well the two that probably jumped out at me in the beginning were psychology and life coaching. But it doesn't sound like that was kind of where you actually started in your working career. Or, or did I get that one wrong? <laughs> no, I'm trying to think back. I'm 50, yeah. 53. Working career started a long time ago. Um, it started in neuropsychology. Huh, okay. I was, um, I was actually fascinated by how the brain and the body connected. Me too. And, yeah. you know, the neurotransmitters and what did exercise do to our brains and yeah. how did it change depression and all those things. So. I was fascinated and I studied that for my bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, what do I do for work? And work at that time, it involved animal testing. And I can't do that. I did it for about a day and then I had to give it up. And then I kind of floundered and went into pharmaceuticals because that was kind of brain and behavior. But um, it's kind of a, a long circuitous path back to the same thing. How does our human body affect our behavior and how how do we change that how do mm. we use exercise to alleviate depression how do we lift people when they're down so what was your question well I was really going yeah going in how you ended up in psychology and life coaching but that just hit me like 
the parallel between you and I in, in that early part of our journey is just almost surreal because I started medicine and all the way through medicine I was like mm, ho-hum mm-hmm. anatomy yeah you know physiology yeah and then we got to neuroscience and I was like whoa this is cool like just to, to see the way the brain works and to to think that it's driving this beautiful body that we have going along in life with us all the time whether we're conscious of that or not that was just for me mind-blowing but then as I sort of progressed on the medical pathway I ended up doing my pharmaceutical part of the course and we got into the clinical practices and I just saw effectively drugs just being handed out to heal chronic illnesses all the time and yet these people didn't look healthy to me they didn't look like they left led a healthy lifestyle and I was like I can't do this like I can't do this there must be another way to have optimal health and well-being and that's when mm. I jumped jump ship as well that's fascinating because yeah. the when you sort of said how did you get here I had to go back and think about yeah. it and I think I was on a particular path studying organizational psychology and I was trying to do my thesis and all of a sudden my dad died. Mm. He had a heart attack. One day I was at home marking papers and I had a call and my mom said, your dad's had a heart attack, come home. In the time it took me to get from New York to Long Island, he had died. And he wasn't ill. He had high blood pressure, but he wasn't ill. So it was just gone. I was 27 <laughs> and obviously, you know, went through the grieving and all of that horrible kind of disbelief mm. but the outcome of that afterwards was I went I don't want other people to go through this you know 27 and my dad's gone and you know I went I want to be in health promotion I want to make people healthy so this doesn't happen to them and so all of a sudden I'd gone from organizational psychology I was focused on health and well-being and I was going to my graduate program and I was this kind of weird person there because I'd be half the time in the gym and then I'd turn up in class and I'd still be in my gym clothes and I didn't know where I was going. And I finished graduate school and my first job was as a personal trainer in a gym. And I went, well, I got a PhD, what am I doing? And, you know, I was working in corporate health promotion in a hospital, Mount Sinai, and I couldn't really, as you say, find my feet. I was kind of going this career, that career. And my husband said, do you want to move to Australia? I went, no, he's English. I was like, I don't know, that's far away. I don't, I thought Sydney was in the middle. That was how much I knew about Australia. And then a few months later he came back and he said, do you want to move to Australia? And I hadn't found the job. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll go for six months. This was 1996 and here we are. Oh, wow. Um, but it, it was a circuitous path and after I got the corporate job here in Melbourne and went for a couple of years and went oh my god this is it was so not where I needed to be and my gut knew it I went to a body pump actually I didn't go to a body pump class I went to the gym and I watched all these classes and just one moment I went into a class I never do aerobics classes because I hated that whole scene but I went into a body pump class and I went, the instructor was on the stage and I did the exercises and I went, that's who I'm meant to be. Wow. Oh my God. And it took me probably a year to 
disentangle myself from the company that I was working for. I set up executive inspiration actually with this trainer that had taught me in my first body pump class. And in the process of teaching this executive inspiration program, I realized I need to teach body pump too. <laughs> 22 years later, I'm still teaching body pump. Wow. One of my huge passions, which I never would have thought. I'm up on stage lifting weights and coaching people. And coming from my dad dying of a heart attack, me saying I want people to be healthy and well, and 22 years later, I'm going, this is, I, I'm here. I got here. Yeah. I'm doing what I meant to be doing. Yeah. Because it, it's in those shadows, those things that, like we started at the beginning, the decisions that you know aren't right, but there's something you need to learn in here, like that corporate setting, the, the dark times, the shadows when your father passed away. But it was through every one of those challenges that you were actually able to find your purpose. And that's what's put you on this pathway, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, I think, seeing your way through the dark and almost not wishing it away because you have to sit there and you have to figure out what's gone wrong and where the way out is. I think it's super easy to give up <laughs> and to just stay put and be sad. And, you know, I think everybody faces those sad moments, mm. but it's sitting with it and knowing this will pass, but it won't pass unless I do something. Yeah. And it's, it's that doing something, whatever it is, that, you know, you just take the next little step and even if that next little step is not where you need to get to, it moves you out mm. and it moves you somewhere different. And I love to remind myself that in these challenging moments, like by, by nature of challenge, when you challenge a muscle and you allow it to heal, the muscle grows stronger. Mm -hmm. And I think that the metaphor is the same through challenging the human experience. Like it's not just about it passing or moving on. It's about seeing it as this i need to learn something in this i need to grow in this moment and leaning into that and delving into it and so at the beginning you said of that story you said that you became really fascinated by how the human body and human physiology changed experience well i had see our, our pattern can continues because i was getting into my third year of medical school as i was having this revelation about the fact that there were so many drugs being doled out and that just didn't feel right to me, that there was something else I was meant to do to create health and well-being, which has been my fascination forever and a day. And my father got really, really sick. And he didn't pass away, but he was incredibly ill for a long period of time. And I just, and I, at the same time, I was on crutches rehabilitating from an ankle reconstruction where they'd said I might never run again. And running for me was, was such an intrinsic part of who I was by that point. And um, I just remember in that moment, like thinking my whole world is, is turned upside down. And I don't know what I'm meant to learn in this, but all I know is that I'm meant to grow through it. And <laughs> I just channeled my energy and it was the same, like through, through adversity, I found purpose. And whilst I got quite lost for quite a while after that, I knew that I was meant to find my feet. I just didn't know what that meant. And I tumbled into coaching adults running classes in the parks of Hobart. 
And it wasn't until I started coaching that I realized that I wasn't the only one with a story and with challenges and with adversity and that human experience that all of us in many ways were there because we had felt challenged and we were a little bit lost and we were seeking that kind of way to get back on our feet. And so by being around other people with stories really highlighted to me, um, not that I, yeah, one thing that I wasn't alone in it, but the second part of it was that I was then fascinated by how experience impacts the human body. So the other way of your equation, because you were like, how does physiology affect experience? But I was going, how do our experiences affect our physiology? That's neat. That's an interesting yeah. flip. So the, I just like, my head's exploding because I'm like, we've never met before now. And yet it's like the universe just threw us into a room together. We were meant to meet. Yeah. Eventually. <laughs> Yeah, in an urban jungle where we don't normally like hang out. But, we'll um, get to run eventually. Yeah, absolutely. I see a mountain in our future. Ah, oh, same here, same here. And um, which kind of brings me, so, okay, so maybe I need to keep playing out the story before I go there. So, so you, you ended well, up. I want to hear your story, but your story. No, 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 no. that's not what we. <laughs> oh, no, we'll have to wait for the mountain. <laughs> um, but another parallel is my book is coming out this year as your books are coming out this year as well. So the, the parallels continue even into 2020. But um, but um, so so we you ended up teaching pump class or body pump. So how, where did the psychology, had you you'd studied psychology by now or was psychology coming? No, I'd studied psychology. Right. I did um, neuropsychology and then I did organizational psychology. Right. And I focused on how to motivate people to exercise as my huh. thesis. Um, which was really not so cool in my organizational psychology program. So I had to put it in a corporate fitness center. And then that was okay. Right. Because <laughs> really it should have been health psychology. Yeah. But, you know. But I get the gist from the way you write in both the books that I've read and, and the way you even speak here that I feel like there's more to what you've learned or what you've uncovered than just in your psychology because a lot of what you seem to how you seem to write delves into that concept of neuro-linguistic programming um that um i've heard the phrase okay i don't know a lot about it it's about sort of the internal dialogue the internal languages and the way we speak with ourselves and how um so much of that is like an unconscious thing that we don't even realize we have this like little maybe an example would be like a little inner voice saying you are weak you are weak or you're not meant to succeed here or why are you doing this why are you doing like you know just that sort of slightly subtle negative dialogue that can then affect the gremlin yeah 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 little green man who sits on your shoulder yeah. and says you can't do that until i studied it i was like i've got this little inner imp <laughs> I yeah. just imagined him on my shoulder, yeah, like, yeah, like, he was sort of like... Flick him off. <laughs> yes, exactly. But, um, okay, but did you study life coaching or, or is sort of coaching just an offshoot of your psychology? More the latter. Okay. Um, and I think when, when I started being a coach, coaching didn't really exist. Mm. One of my friends from college said, maybe you should be an executive coach because that was my nature. Everybody that I talked to, I intrinsically coached. Um, 
And that was just something that I did. And I think I studied the organizational psychology a lot about motivation and job satisfaction. And it kind of went together. Um, I think coaching for me is much more a dialogue. It's not, I don't have a toolbox that I bring. Mm. It's more talking to the human being in front of me and almost seeing what they're not saying or what's between the lines. That's, that's neurolinguistic. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I'm sure it does have some good technical term that I don't know, but it, it's always been, I've always had an ability to hear what people aren't saying mm. in their body or in their words and to say, Hey, wait a minute, that doesn't match up. What your words are saying doesn't match the rest of you. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully helping them to redirect that or figure out some insight. So it's probably come more from who I am and what I've experienced with a little bit of the psychology kind of framing it, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, because that was one of my questions for you. Do you teach and work more from the tools of psychology that you learn in a formal sense or more from life experience? Probably more life experience. Mm. I'll draw on theories sometimes, you know, more real psychology to say, look, beliefs and attitudes and actions, all of that goes together in a particular way. So if you want to change your belief about yourself, you can work on your thinking or you can take action and let the action change your thinking. <laughs> so I'll use that model mm -hmm. often to help people do something that they don't think they're capable of. So you don't have to change your thinking, just go do it. And then your thinking changes as a result. Mm. Kind of similar to what you were saying. Is it your body changing your mind or your mind changing your body? Mm. And that skill of inferential listening to be able to read between the lines is just such an important skill to have. I think most, most people have it, but it's about really refining that. Because you have like you have the the listening version of us and then the speaking version of us and what has become really apparent to me is that to be a strong leader or someone who strongly can create change you need to have that ability to inferential listen and listen to what's this person not saying or you know what's happening in this moment that I'm not hearing but I can hear I can see. It's quite tricky though because often if you point that out to people it can be very jarring. Mm. People don't want you to have that insight. Because that's our shadow. Yeah. And, and so if you're a coach, if you do that, I've often found people will sit back yeah. and go, I, I didn't want to be seen. Yeah. So it, it is a, it's a fine line Yeah. that, you know, sometimes you fall over the wrong side of it and you go, oh no, that didn't, that yeah. fell like a ton of bricks and that's not what I meant. But I guess that's why the coaching framework is so powerful because it's about absolutely in your heart believing that your client has the answers and your role is simply to help shed light on the shadows to make the shadows brighter but also their their brightness brighter by asking questions and therefore you're not suddenly pulling out a flashlight and you know just poking it into their shadow but yeah. you're allowing them to sort of slowly pull back the curtains if you want to take a metaphor to it yeah that's a really yeah. good metaphor but i think that if you want to be powerful particularly in a leadership position or an executive position is to be able to be an inferential listener so especially if you think about someone with like a 
leading a cohort around them that they can read between the lines of all their little worker bees and see what's not being said and what needs to be heard but then to be able to be a literal speaker so to say it with no bullshit <laughs> you mm. know and that's why I really I think where Obama's strength really was for example was he was an amazing listener and he could hear what wasn't being spoken but then he could just say it how it is yeah and everyone could understand and I what think a treasure of a person <laughs> absolutely and if you look at his successor no, let's let go of that. someone who's a literal <laughs> listener and doesn't want to know what's being said between the lines and it's it's a perfect example though isn't it and yeah, yeah. it's a new yorker and yeah. I, i'm from new york i can see a lot of that in that particular person yeah that it's a surface level shoot and don't think about the consequences yeah and it yeah and the inferential listener is very much a it's it's not that it only happens in females. I'm going to say it's a feminine trait. It's not that it's just happening in a female population. Like men have feminine traits and women have masculine traits, but it is very much a feminine trait. And I guess part of that nurturing kind of side of the feminine spirit. But yeah. Huh. So, okay. So I'm kind of curious then, because you did organizational psychology, but why executive? And what was it about executive that took you into that? area of psychology and work? Um, I thought my role was going to be human resource ish oh, issues. Okay. <clears throat> and when I joined my corporate job, I started out in performance management, which I thought, being a little bit naive, I really wanted to motivate people at work. I wanted people to be happy and fulfilled and be living their purpose and living their values. So I thought organizational psychology this is the way to go. And I got my corporate job. And no, that wasn't exactly what it was in the corporate world. It was a completely different animal. Mm. And I got there and I tried to speak my truths and I tried to motivate and I tried to inspire. And it was like I was going, speaking completely the wrong language. I was speaking Russian in America. <laughs> and nobody kind of got it, except when I went, I'm going to start this company called Executive Inspiration. And my first client was the company I worked for. Oh, wow. And I brought my boss and the CEO and the top leadership team into a gym. And we sat them on spin bikes and played this incredibly powerful music and got their heart rates up. And I did all of that motivational stuff, but it wasn't through the company. It was through my own company. So Executive Inspiration came just because I was sitting in an executive setting and going, why is everybody so miserable? Why is everybody so demotivated? Why this is not how life is meant to be? So what's the answer to that question? Why were they so unmotivated and demotivated? How do people <laughs> end up in that situation of such pain? Um, in the corporate world, I, before I started graduate school, I would have said it was the individual. Now I understand there are so many different constraints in the corporate world that impact the individual that you can't just go in and say okay i'm going to fix you as an individual and you'll be happy often it's the corporate structure that's creating the distress or it's the client demands or it's the external environment so having an executive coach go into a company and work with an individual is such a disempowering thing to do 
unless you can change that company. Because suddenly you're putting the burden on that individual to change when often it's not in their power to change. It's in the power of the company. So I very quickly left executive coaching because I found it really disheartening to think, well, go ahead, go ahead and change, but they can't. Mm. So I went into life coaching individuals and went, okay, I'm going to work with this person. They deal with the external things around them, but I can help that individual. That's mm -hmm. where I, I work solely now. I don't do executive coaching. Yeah, which is also where I went. I went from elite coaching down to working with everyday people because I find that fascinating. And I'm excited that we can now talk about stress as a topic. Because what, what did you see as the manifestation of someone feeling stuck and disempowered in a workplace? Like how was that playing out in people's lives and physical bodies and spirits? Um, anxiety, physical illness, depression, inability to go to work. I often saw that. Um, I didn't sit in that executive role for so long that I can really comment on people in the workplace so much. Yeah. Where I sit now is more with individuals. I often coach people with their own businesses. So I act kind of as that center of business for the individual. And they come to me with, you know, the strategic issues or the marketing issues and how to move forward there. Um, stress to me is just not living it in accordance with who you are at your deepest level. Mm. If you know who that is, then you can take action and do things differently. Because this is my motto in life is be wilder, play wilder, perform wilder. And it has to go in that order. And to me, the be wilder state is exactly what you just said. It's about knowing who you are at the core of your human being. When you peel back what you do and who you're responsible to, it's, it's who are you. And um, the other day I was giving a keynote and I was preparing for it. And my husband actually, Graham, he said to me, um, how do you know who you are? How do you find who you are? And I'm going to turn that question back to you because I still struggle with it. You know, even as a coach, even I mean, I've got lots of tools, but how do you find who you are at the core of it? Um, me personally or both? Everybody. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm so fascinated by the question. How do you find who you are? Um, I think there are lots of pathways to find out who you are. For me, writing in a journal is mm -hmm. one of them. Same. Um, it's a strange thing. Music often tells me who I am. I recently got Spotify, and I realized that I really like a certain type of music that I hadn't realized I liked until I kept getting rid of songs. And then all of a sudden, my Spotify playlist reflects who I am which you Spotify. It's very strange. That cool. That is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I never knew I liked Guns N' Roses, but there <laughs> we are. Um, I think there are lots of ways. For me, sport is one way that I've really figured out who I am and hopefully change bits that I haven't liked. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe not, um, but figured out who I am and how to cope with the bits that I don't like. Um, and often in the moments that things have gone horribly wrong, 
that you're going, I'm in the wrong place, this sucks, I hate this, that's the best indication of who you are. Because you're going, no. Um, I remember sitting in, after I finished graduate school and I got my, it wasn't a personal trainer job, that was an exaggeration. I was on the gym floor putting the weights back on the machines when people left them behind. That was my big corporate job after I finished grad school at New York Sports. And I remember the first meeting I went that was like the, the big company meeting. And it was in some building in New York and we all sat down. And I sat down around this big table with all of the other fitness people. And it was like, I came home. Mm. I went, ah. Oh, this is your tribe. The, yeah, you're my tribe. Yeah. And I just felt so at ease. And I think that way, if you suddenly feel this is home, I feel at ease. That's a good indication that you're figuring out who you are. Yeah. It's the flip side of that. My stomach doesn't feel right. Yeah. No, I, and that that's that's exciting for me to hear because that's that's kind of my answer to it as well. And I definitely think writing, there is just something so powerful about writing. But then when you talked about listening to music, I, I don't listen to music a lot, but when I hear a song that just resonates with you, it feels so right, so good. And it tells you a lot about emotion. I think if you, if you were to even ask yourself, like if this, if this song was an emotion, what emotion is it? And it'll, it'll really point a very great spotlight on how, like what emotion you're experiencing in that moment. That's a good question. Um, but I also, for me, it's about getting uncomfortable. I think when you're uncomfortable, it, it opens up all of your rawness. Like it's like pulling back the blankets and this is me. Um, and even like a couple of weekends ago, I went out into Western Arthurs in Southwest Tasmania and it was not planned. Like I, it was not even on my radar. I mean, in some ways, maybe in hindsight, it was on my radar because we'd been on a number of trips and walks and runs over time. And you always see this range because it's like a real sawtooth range. It's obvious from so many places and it's just dramatic but I'd never been there. And I'd often be asking Graham or the person I was with like, oh, you know, what's it like? And then I had quite a few friends who just went there and came back with all these stories. And it was like, I guess my RAS system, my reticular activating system was so aware of the Western Arthurs, but my conscious brain, my unconscious brain was trying to tell me to go there, but my conscious brain hadn't got there yet. Until Graham said to me, um, a friend, another friend is up there and he's just got back and he's posted photos and the conditions look amazing. Why don't you go and run it? And like, this is one of supposedly one of the harder runs in Tasmania to do because it's not really a run. It's kind of like a up, over, down, under, up, scrabble, bang your shins on a rock. <laughs> like, wow, you're so like it's just, it's everything. And um, he's like, and Han, you've never done anything big and solo in Tasmania. I mean, I'd run in the French Pyrenees, but it's so different there because it's a very safe environment. Um, I mean, you might come unstuck and be unlucky for a few hours, no one will find you, but someone will come along and stumble on you and help you. But in Southwest Tasmania, it's just, it's just so raw. And I got out there and I was, I thought I was going to be so uncomfortable and the idea of getting out there was so uncomfortable. But when I like crawled out of the van at like quarter to four in the morning and put my head torch on and you're in this pitch black forest and 
oh, just no. setting, you know, your your cup of tea using your jet boil stove and you're tiptoeing around because there's other people camping and you're getting ready to go out on a trail you've never been on into the mountains. Like, it's so uncomfortable and yet we're so comfortable. And as soon as I got out there and the sun was coming up, I was like, there is no place on the planet I'm meant to be other than here. And this is, this is who I am, you know, and it just sheds that spotlight. So I can absolutely say that, because I had a question for you about values, but for me, finding my values has come A, through writing, but B, particularly through exploring. And I now know that challenge is my number one value in life. <laughs> like if I'm not challenged, I'm probably not a nice person to be around. <laughs> That's but. fascinating because I wrote a list of my values last year in my diary, just at the start of the year. And I think challenge was on the top. <laughs> I, kept, I was going to bring in the diary to show you, but I forgot it. Uh, but it was, you know, a whole list of things and challenge was right up there. Yeah. But, but what a, like, what a, what a challenge using that, but what a challenge to understand your values. And I think you think finally that you get them nailed down and then you wake up the next day and they've already changed. Like the values are constantly evolving. Yeah, and I think that's when you say, who are you? You have to recognize that who you are changes, mm -hmm. you know, from when you're 20 to now I'm 53. And I, when you mentioned my book, I kind of went, that's who I was at 37. Who am I now? And I actually reread re my book yesterday to prepare for this, and I went, wow, that's really different. And it took me a moment to come back into who I am now, because I remembered quite clearly who I was. Mm. But you do evolve, mm. and what you're interested in and what you're passionate about. As you grow and you change, I think it's good to allow that change, to say, you know, this is, this is who I was, that's cool. I'm going to make an altar to that person, put a flag on it and say, okay, I'm going to move on now. Mm. It's okay to evolve, you know, where once this might have been my thing, now my thing is over here. Now mm. I play piano, you know, where 10 years ago I didn't own a piano, but now that's another part of me that I can touch soul and go, before it was only running, <laughs> but now I can sit down at the piano and go, ah, okay, there I am again. Mm. And, you know, it doesn't only have to be you in a static point. Yeah. That these are my values forever. They can change. But change can be so uncomfortable. And one of the challenges that I've been grappling with recently is that I have grown so much as well as a person. And I think because I have really known in my heart that I actually need to consciously work on self and consciously try and really understand who I am. And I think particularly because in a role that's a carer, a healer and helping, you know, therefore to help someone to grow and evolve as well, I think you have to have a really strong sense of self. Um, you have to bring that sort of strength of, strength of self into the room when you work with people. Yeah. Um, but I'm kind of interested because you said uh, another quote that came out of um, the book In Pursuit of Joy is sometimes we don't notice our self changing. It can be a subtle process and the beauty is that often you may be closer to who you wish to be than you realize. And that one really resonated with me <laughs> as well. And 
maybe I don't necessarily have a question on that. I just I just wanted to point it out. I just love that line or that couple of lines. Um, yeah, because you don't know. Sometimes you can make a conscious move forward, and sometimes it can be happening subtly, like you're in a river and you're just going along with it. And suddenly you're in a different point in that river and you didn't even notice that you'd moved there. And they go, oh wow, this is a great new spot. How'd that happen? Yeah. And you know, I don't think it necessarily has to be such a push, push, hard, let's make things happen. Mm. I think it's always happening. You know, whether it's you go and do something or something like this podcast just falls in your lap, but in a way, it's like the book, The Tipping Point you keep doing and doing and doing and doing and somewhere along the line it tips it wouldn't have tipped if you hadn't done all that stuff first mm. but you don't necessarily make the tip happen you do the work and eventually it, it just tips over mm. off you go oh i love that and that's that comment that you said before is like you know something's upon you but you just don't know what that is it's like you do the work to position yourself to be ready to jump when the opportunity comes your way. Yeah, and then you gotta yeah. have the guts. You know, often there have been so many moments that it, it's almost like a visual, you're on a cliff edge. And <laughs> should you go? And sometimes you're scared to death and you turn and you walk right back down. <clears throat> and sometimes you go, hell, I'm going. Um, is it three years ago? The Wonderland race happened in Hall's Gap. First year, my family went with me, and then they got older. The next year, they couldn't, because my son had soccer, and you know that's important to him. I really wanted to go to Hall's Gap. I really wanted to do this, and I was scared to death. Seriously, like scared. I hate driving to new places. And it's a five-hour drive from home, and I'm shaking, and I'm going, I can't, and I got physically sick. But I went, I'm going, and I went. And it's that, you know, you're on the cliff. Should I go, should I go? And in a way, it doesn't really matter if you're scared or not. You make the decision and then you go. <laughs> and that's the hard part, the making the decision. Once you've made it, then, you know, you just got to follow through. Yeah. Because you had another, I keep doing this to you, you had another quote. You said, perhaps I asked the wrong question. The real question is not whether we are sparrows or eagles. It is what we do with who we are. It is whether we behave with courage, with grace. It is whether we fly in freedom. And I was like, oh, because that's what you're saying. It's like, do we fly off this cliff edge? Whether we're an eagle or a sparrow in that moment doesn't matter. It's the, the point is, do we get off the cliff edge and start flying? Um, but I think that that brings in to me, have you ever heard of the hero's journey? Do you use the hero's journey in your work? I've heard of it. I don't Ooh. know much about it, but I like it. Yes. That's my will. next thing. Please then. go on Google. Um, any, any favorite book you have, any favorite movie you have, or you hear a keynote speaker or someone speaking on the radio and you're just like, oh, that is so incredible. Like that is the movie of the century it's it's always based on a hero's journey mm -hmm. and it's about this concept that we live in our ordinary world and we've become really accustomed to our ordinary world but then we keep getting this sort of sense or um, feeling of a call to action and the call to action happens three times but we reject it twice and it's not till the third time it comes around that, mm, we, it gives me goosebumps. Yeah, that we cross the threshold 
but the rejection always comes on our in like on our greatest enemy which is often a limiting belief or a negative emotion so in your sense it was always fear fear would send you back away from the cliff edge and then the cold action would come again and you'd walk towards the cliff edge and then a fear would send you back away from it and then the third time around that call is so strong it's so undeniable that you decide to jump off the cliff edge and fly um, and it's in that moment when we cross the threshold that we meet our mentor and normally the mentor is someone who has been to the cliff edge and jumped and knows what the new world is like and they help you to go on your hero's journey and so if you look at the matrix or you look at wizard of oz or alice in wonderland or any of those kind of classic movies or novels like they're all based on this hero's journey so even like childhood stories like toy story and mm -hmm. madagascar and, and the three Kung Fu Panda, the three and it's always in threes yeah um it's very spiritual yeah and it, it kind of like and the thing is like coming from science and i have a mum who's a medical practitioner and not so much now but growing up was very black and white in her thinking i had a father who was very very spiritual and very sort of always saw the shades of grey and almost to the detriment of seeing black and white. And um, I always lent to black and white science and was very like, this is how it is and that is how it is and if I can't see it, it doesn't exist. But the more I've kind of gone on this journey and um, into the coaching world and studied under my incredible mentor that I work with now, it's like I absolutely believe in the shade of grey. I believe in black and white. I believe in black and white, but I believe in the shade of grey as well. It's a complex world. Completely. You know? Yeah. Black and white works when you're 20. And then you start to grow and see there's a lot more to it. Yeah. Um, there was something that occurred to me when you were speaking about this hero's journey. Um, and I don't know whether you've experienced this, but it's something that came back to me when you were saying it. Um, often that call to action in my life has been what I call dark man dreams. <laughs> I don't know if you've experienced this. It's um, something called hypnagogic hallucination. Ooh. When you're asleep, but you're not fully asleep. Mm -hmm. So when you're, um, your REM brain, your REM sleep occurs before your body shuts down. So you're asleep in bed, but you're in the room and you're dreaming. And you'll see somebody standing by the side of the bed but that person's not there, but it's in the room that you're in. Whoa. That's a hypnagogic hallucination. So you're, you think that you're awake, but you're actually sleeping. Most terrifying thing oh that's my God. ever happened. Imagine. And often, not often, but many times in my life when I've been on the wrong path or I've been needing to do something different, I'll have that dream. And it's your psyche going, wake up. You're doing the wrong thing. And it's almost that internal self is your call to action, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Absolutely. So it's a physical manifestation in your space. And often it has been a dark man standing on the side of the bed. And I've woken up and I've screamed. And I've gone, oh my God, there's someone in the room. And there's no one in the room. And it's absolutely terrifying. But it's made me go, oh, something's really off. Yeah. I think dreams are your unconscious mind's way of trying to tell your conscious mind, the one that we generally try and live our day-to-day -day worlds with, that something is askew or something needs to be processed or, or sort of addressed. And um, my mentor often tries to 
say that self is self. So if you're having a dream, um, I had a dream the other day that uh, I was trying to run a race. At the same time, I was trying to guide a group of people in the race with me to safety. So we were in this forest and there were mountains. Oh my God, this um, is my next book. I'm serious. <laughs> this really? is, I've written this book. No, I don't. Don't. No, that's just too uncanny. But there were these there, there were these naysayers on the sidelines who didn't believe I could do it. So this was my dream. And so I was, I was telling my uh, mentor this in our last coaching session and she said, put yourself in the shoes of the naysayers. What are they saying about Hanny? I'm like, well, well, they're saying that Hanny can't do it. And she's like, why are they saying that Hanny can't do it? Well, because it shakes their own like belief systems and, and their own values about how success and performance and safety come about. And she's like, why is it important to have a strong sense of that, you know, for this naysayer? Oh, because it makes them feel successful or like powerful. Why is it important for them to feel powerful? And she just broke it down, broke it down, broke it down until we got to this point where it was like, because they're frightened of like their belief systems being shaken. Okay. And then she's like, okay, um, put yourself in the shoes of the mountains. Why is it important that Hanny faces mountains? And I was like, because mountains provide challenge. And she's like, why is it important for Hanny to be challenged? And she just kept doing it. And she said, every character, every element of your dream is you. Oh, yeah. And if you can understand that and you can put it all together, it'll absolutely shed a spotlight on what your unconscious mind is trying to, trying to tell your conscious mind. And I just got to this point where it was about... Yes, I want to be challenged, but at the same time, I need to look after myself and, and guide myself to safety. And that was my dream. And as soon as I did that, then I just had this like overwhelming sense of like, oh, oh yeah, okay, I get it. Like, and it felt so right. And like, it was that gut instinct that you talked about. I was like, yep, it's time to back off and give myself some rest and recovery and nurturing. Incredible. And it's funny how the mind makes it that it's got to be somebody else yeah that. and it's so just gotta, you just kind of sit back and go ah oh, okay yeah i get it now yeah and i think recognizing all of that darkness is all it's all just part of you and often that dark part is the most powerful yeah if you can harness its energy and let that do the work for you yeah then that, that's cool wow so can I just rewind just, just a moment back to values again? Because, I mean, our values are our, like, North Star. They're our guiding lights. And if we have an awareness of them, it helps us to say no to the opportunities that we need to say no to and yes to the ones we need to say yes to. kind of helps us, like, stay on the stay on the path and not fall into the woods necessarily like Akalina did in your book. <laughs> but um, I think one of the biggest challenges that I keep facing is that I keep thinking this needs to be a value as in particularly when you are faced with the adversity that the world's faced with at the moment fires are burning we're told climate change is upon us um, it's just you know the ne the negative media negative stories are all around us Plus also we grow up in our families and in our communities and cultures where there are embedded values within them as well. That not, it isn't necessarily that they're right, they're the right fit for you and your values. So there are values that you think you should you have. You think you should have. 
and you go, yeah, yeah, no, that they're definitely a value I'll have of that. mine. I'll have it's that. Like That's there's a grocery definitely store right. and you're gonna tick that off the shelf. Absolutely. And, and I put it in here and it doesn't really <clears> feel quite right, but like it needs to be there because I'm a good citizen of the world. And yet those good citizens of the world who actually have those values have their job to do as well. Mm. You have Henny's job to mm. do. You can't put their values in you and do their job effectively. Hmm. You know, um, January 5th or 6th? January 6th this year, I went back to teaching Body Pump. And on the way to my class, the bushfires are burning everywhere. I'm driving along up on the billboard. They're showing the bushfires and the fundraising relief up. The other billboard is showing it. I got on the treadmill to get my head in the right space because all I've done is look at the fire emergency app all week. <clears throat> all the television screens in front of me, the whole world is on fire. We're all raising I had to go teach this class. And I was just heartbroken, depressed, horrified at what was going on in our world and going, the world, how can I get in front of a group of people and inspire them? I can't even feel any degree of elation myself because this is horrific. I got in front of the class and I said, look, the world is on fire. Everything's horrible. The best thing we can do right now is make our bodies and our souls strong and stable so we can go out and do some good in the world. Without us being okay, we can't do anything to help. I couldn't ignore the fact that the world is burning up around me, but I can empower and strengthen the people around me and myself to face it. I can't pick up the value of being a conservationist because that's not me, but maybe I've got a conservationist in my class who needs to feel hope and needs to feel strong and capable and I can give them that and then they can go and do their value mm. oh. yeah that is so cool um, and so ref like refreshing to hear because that parallel continues yeah it and honestly that was a real moment I was heartbroken and I'm still yeah. heartbroken and the the bush is our home. That's our cathedral. Absolutely. And it's funny, the adventures I planned for the last four years, I've written down in my diary. And looking at them, I'm like, all of those places are on fire. Yeah. And, you know, so you go, okay, regroup. Mm. And I think all of us have to look for that deep sense of self. You know, I, I went home and I, I downloaded the song, You Raise Me Up. Oh, I love that song. <laughs> and I, I had it on Spotify and then I went, you know what, I can play piano. So I went to Music Notes and I got the easy piano. And I sat down at my piano and I just played it. And I went, okay, you know, I got to get myself grounded and then I can go do what I need to do. But your question, can you pick up values that you think should be right? I, you know the answer. Because it makes you go, yeah. it, you know, I those other people have those values yeah we can't force ourselves into a box that doesn't fit it's just so refreshing to hear it patricia because um 2015 the 
Tasmanian bushfires were happening. And the significance of the fires in 2015 in Tasmania for us was that they were happening in areas that are just never meant to burn. A bit like the fires that were happening in Queensland at one point where it was happening in pristine rainforest. And it's like, it's a rainforest, it's not meant to burn. And, and that was the significance of these ones in Tasmania was it was all down the west coast of Tasmania and also particularly up in the highland areas where you have these like Gondwan and rainforest species. So pencil pines that are like thousands and thousands of years old that have a family. And so if the parent of the pencil pines is damaged, it can upset the whole community of pencil pines. And these pencil pines have nowhere left to move. Like they're already being pushed to the extremes of where they can live. There's nowhere higher for them to go. So short of like, I did a podcast earlier in, well, maybe it was last year um, with a guy called Dr. Boma, and he was saying, short of taking these pencil pines to like Antarctica or Macquarie Island and transplanting them there and giving them hope there, like there's nowhere for these pencil pines to go. And so when these fires happen, I was working in the store one day, and this wilderness photographer, Rob Blake, as he walked into the store and he came up to me he just stood in front of me and he wasn't speaking and he looked like he'd been to war he had that real traumatized expression on his face and I said are you okay and he's like you'll just never believe what I've seen and he told me that he'd just gone up into the fire straight after the fires had happened and I said to him would you take me there and it was on the eve of my 30th birthday and I'd been like so excited to be turning 30. I don't know why. I mean, I just, I love a party. Like, I don't love a party. I'm a total introvert, but I, I love the concept of birthdays. <laughs> and, um, and so anyway, on my 30th birthday, we found us, uh, I found myself like walking up into the highlands with him and my father and my husband, Graham. And um, you crest over these mountains and you look down into this area that has just been completely destroyed and there's these big stags and it was dead calm it was the most weird surreal ethereal kind of experience and we pitched our tent and we had a bright little red tent and i went out one night um just as we, we'd just gone to bed and i was like oh i should go to the bathroom and i came out and there was a, a moon coming up there were eagles flying around and i turned around and there's this little red tent with a glow of the head torch so the little tent was lit up and then these like black stags just poking out and um the black yeah, stags with the trees the trees that just should never burn like they actually sit with their feet in water it's so surreal and the next day i just was walking next to rob and i just was i just was such a lost soul and i said to him like i don't understand and i don't understand what my role in this is and he said honey this is climate change you know, we always said it was a problem for our children. It's not a problem for our children. It's a problem for us. It's, it's real and it's now. And I said, but I don't understand what I'm meant to do. And he said, you just have to believe that all these people are out there and eventually we're all going to come together, like good people and we're going to come together. But I kind of interpreted that at the time as like, I need to make a difference. And I took very strong conservation approach because conservation is a very strong value in my family as well, particularly on the masculine side of my family. And I was like, right, this is me. I need, you know, like I can't just go and run around the world and run races and coach people to run races and fly people to the other side of the world on tours. Like I need to personally change. But so I became a very lost soul after that moment. And it, it's probably taken three years to actually, but I've never heard it lingered in the way you did. It's like our role doesn't have to be the firefighter or the conservationist. I think our role is to understand ourselves 
and to make sure we make choices in our life that empower us like avoid the plastic bags and you know recycle all your stuff and buy the organic where you can we can make those choices but your role my role is to help people to find themselves you know and it's funny i can see in your body that that's not your role mm. you said it was your family that's their value and in your body you're saying it's not you and to me I, I can't direct you what your role is. I can see it quite clearly. <laughs> and I can see you glow when you are living it. So what I would say is keep clear on it. Don't let the external things come in. Yeah. Because your role has to be played. If you neglect your role in the pursuit of some better, more important role, you've left a hole. And that hole is just, that's your hole. That's Henny-shaped hole. Nobody else can fill that one. I love that. You know? Yes. And you being yeah. true to that is going to shift the world the way it's meant to go. Yeah. You know, and obviously the world is in strife. Um, we see a lot more in media, in horribleness, than we ever did. And I often have to take myself back a step and realize the world is a lot more resilient than we give it credit for. You know, I was here in 2009 when the Maryvilles, Marysville, I was working. Down. Yeah, yeah. And for years I went up and did the Marysville half marathon and marathon to support the community there. And I could see it change and grow and improve mm -hmm. and nature comes back. Whether it will come back in a way that supports human life, we don't know. I'd, I'd like to think we can control that and make a difference. Nature will be okay. Yeah. Humans may not. Can we control that as individuals? As you said, we can control our part in it. You can live your own life and your values and shift things that way. Mm. Oh, I'm so grateful for that part of the conversation. I'm grateful for the whole conversation and the fact that you have written an email some months back and it's landed us in a room in Docklands in <laughs> and I can see a tree out there somewhere jungle Melbourne and yet I feel like nature's in the room with us at the moment because um I can just see someone who is absolutely in tune with playing out her values and allowing and creating a space and holding that space for others to find theirs and you've done that in so many elements of your career, but it's brought you, so you went to Hong Kong and sat in Hong Kong and went, wow, this is, you, from what I can read, it was a very challenging time for you. The first year was, yeah. and then I found the trails and oh my God, what a beautiful place. I still miss my trails in Hong Kong. Yeah, but you must have found the people too, because Am I correct in saying that the children you've adopted have been from Hong Kong? Yeah, we yeah. adopted them when we were living there. Wow, okay. Which, you know, in one synchronicity, I actually said to my husband, let's go live in Hong Kong. I didn't mean it at the time, but he took me seriously and got a job, and I went, oh, okay. okay. Um, and I didn't realize why I said it until a year and a half in there, I went, something's missing. And I realized it was children. Hmm. And we had decided we were going to adopt. Hmm. So, you know, I think... You know, you, you do these strange things and then suddenly the reason why opens up yeah. down the track. Huh. Yeah. Um, but I think in any new place I've struggled, 
and it takes a while to figure out how do I live who I am in this place. But it's quite a nice struggle. I've lived in lots of places. Maybe, well, maybe that maybe that's a value, but um, I think there's something quite nice about almost being shaken like it's like oh, being put in it. a bottle and you're shaking around and all your values and all your beliefs and all the things you love and it all gets turned upside down and yeah. cheese is yellow and it's not meant to be yellow and the butter's white it's and how do you see chips and exactly and you know what coffee do i order because i don't have soy milk on the menu and everything that you believe is like thrown up in the air yeah and the best part that i've always remembered was once everything's packed up and they put it on a ship somewhere and then suddenly you've got nothing but your suitcase and you're absolutely free. <laughs> and I'd always want the ship to sink, <laughs> but it never did. But I think the challenge in having young children, every six years we would move and go to this new adventure, but we've been here 11 years now. And I've had to go, we're not moving. How do I find that newness in this place? And that's been the hardest thing to keep finding new and keep going deeper. And in a way, I think I was fleeing a little bit of depth by moving and moving. Because mm. you don't have to go deep when you move. You can go, I'm, not, I'm here temporarily, you know? Mm. But when you're here, here, it's different. And I found a different depth to things. So how do you find newness in sameness? Um, I think I get stuck in patterns and then I have to force myself to break out. For me it was, okay, I did the same races every year and that's my pattern and then I get bored. And in the past I'd always just move countries so that created all new races and that's fine. But <laughs> That's a know, fairly like, challenging way to find a new race. Well, yeah, move. I know, <laughs> it was, but it worked. So, but I think this was the first time that I stayed put and I went, how do I, what do I do now? And my kids were growing up and I couldn't race because soccer was on at race time. So I had to find new things. Last year it was, I can't fit any races in. And I found a friend and I said, oh, you want to do crazy stuff? And she said, yes. And I went, oh, this is great. And we just went just solo in crazy new places, ran up Mount Donna Buang in the middle of a sleet storm. And, you know, places we'd never been. And we just had a map and we had courses. And suddenly it wasn't races anymore. Suddenly it was like, where can we go? I call it missioning. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And I probably got that idea from you. When, okay, what can we do that's, and I think races gave me safety. Mm -hmm. That's why I did them because my husband couldn't do the stuff. Somebody else sets out a course, you know that they're there to pick you up and save you if you need saving. They set the route. And I think that was my foray into it all that you know, somebody else says the Dandenongs is a safe place to run. I went and did the roller coaster run and then, oh, that door opened. Now I've got a map. <laughs> and suddenly all of the doors around start opening. Yeah. So I think it's, it's looking more widely and then just saying, how do I fit it in? I'm not giving up my races. What do I do that I can keep the family and keep the values there, but they don't want me to be miserable. I need to go to the Dandenongs on a Friday. Great. And this is something that I think is something that I've worked on a lot with parents and it's something that I've had to really process for myself. It's probably one of my Achilles heels is guilt. The guilt to go and do something for yourself 
so that you can be there to hold the space for others. I always call it work on number one, number one, <laughs> so that you can help number two, three, four, five, and six. We call it putting your mask on first. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, when the airplane yes. is going down. Yeah. You know, yeah. first save yourself. Yeah. And then you can save the people yeah. around you. Yeah. And for someone that values challenge and it appears that you value newness, it's still really easy to find newness and challenge in sameness. And I think that in some ways that is the challenge is like, how can I make today playful when I've run this route or I've been in this place so many times before? Like, can I run it backwards? Can I run the hill differently? What can I notice that I've never noticed it before? What do I smell? Or every time I see a red mini, I'm going to run fast. And every time I see a blue Camry, I'm going to run slow. Um, like, I just think that there are so many games and experiences that we can have in our own backyard. And I personally believe that's kind of where we actually all need to eventually go a little bit more is that we probably aren't going to be so freely able to flit around the world. I'm not saying yet, but I'm saying down the track, like the, maybe it was a long way down the track, but I still believe that time will come when we need to be a little bit more finding experiences and challenges in our own backyard. And I call it playing local. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I think when I've looked at my course, my plan for this year, I started getting on all these different sites and saying, I could go here, I could go there. I could. And then I went, maybe I'll just stay in Australia. Mm. I've not seen a lot of the Alps, the Victorian Alps, you know. And so I think there's the, the staying local, but the part about the, doing the same route, in a way, it's also looking inwards. Mm. And I think inside you is limitless in how many experiences you have in the same place. And that's kind of neat. Because if I'm running the same route, but I'm in a different headspace, I'm not seeing the same yeah. things. And all of a sudden, well, that red bluff, that's a different place today than it was yesterday. And how you interpret that experience, exactly. It's, it's a choice as well. I mean, how many times have you got to Sunday morning and you didn't have a plan, but you think, damn it, we need to get out, we need to go and do something. And, you, and then you start going, oh, we could go here, or we could go there, or do we go there? Maybe we should go and do this. And after a while, you've got so many options on the table that you send yourself into a little dizzy spin and you're like, I don't know, I just, this is what happens to me. I just like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And I, I get really almost anxious about making a decision of what's gonna be the most fun today. The reality is whatever you pick of the options on the table, you know you will have fun and i just i do it to myself all the time and now i kind of know i'm doing it to myself and i like, can just stop just any mini money mo pick one and then choose to have fun <laughs> as soon as you do it's great <laughs> my daughter has something on her phone that's a decision spinner oh oh um, it's some, she's very clever she's got this app and she'd put what we we're going to have for dinner and you press a button and it spins around and it makes the choice for you I think I need that. I thought it was quite cool I'll yeah. have to find out for you what app that was. Decision making is not one of my most powerful skills because no. that's the conscious brain over analyzing everything. And the unconscious brain is just trying to send you a little cue. Yeah. <laughs> it's just saying, all I really want to do is have fun. So just choose to have fun. You could probably do that at home. You don't need to go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the challenge, you know. 
just being in you. But I, sadly, with children, we don't have that many choices anymore. Yeah. It tends to be either soccer here or soccer there. Right. And then, yeah. you know, you choose to have fun within that setting. Yeah. And I'm very aware that, obviously, time is, is passing and we probably eventually need to reach resolution on this podcast. But um, I just want to ask what the adoption process was like and the, that it's not the process, the experience was like. I'm imagining challenging, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, extraordinary. We adopted our son during SARS in Hong Kong. Wow. So it was 2003. And stack of paperwork and huge amount of meetings and talking to people about your motivations and who's going to be the primary caregiver and six months of all of this stuff. And then they go into what they called a matching meeting. So you, have, you fill out a bit of paperwork at the time that said, I want this sort of child with these issues or not these issues, and tick, 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 tick. And then they try to match you up with a child who's like those, that picture that you've created. <laughs> and you sit at home at that point in time, and we waited for the phone to ring. <clears throat> I didn't know at that point whether it was going to be a week, a month, a year, or never, that we might get matched with a child. It was a week. Oh, wow. <laughs> so from going from me and my husband and a cat, they called up and said, we've matched you with the baby. Can you come and meet him? I had no experience. We were living in Hong Kong by ourselves, no family, no nothing. I ne never held a baby other than my best friend's baby when he was born. And all of a sudden there was this baby that we went to meet in the new territories in Hong Kong. Um, and I remember holding, I was wearing the same watch and I remember the first time I met him, I was just terrified. And the second time he touched my watch and he was fascinated. And it was like, immediately I knew he was my baby. <laughs> And from that moment, you know, he's 15 now and he's still, it was like my heart fell into place. Yeah. And I went, this is why we came here. And of course we brought him home a week later and it was like, we had no idea. I had to hire a nurse to tell me how to put on a diaper. Um, and it was a whole steep learning curve of what to do. And he was a great teacher. I always called him the Buddha because he did what babies should do. He did exactly what all the, um, <laughs> the baby books said. And I'd read like a month in advance of what to expect when you have a baby. <laughs> so I'd know, okay, he's seven months. This is what he's going to do when he's eight months. Yeah. So I can plan ahead. And thankfully, he followed the, the pattern. It's challenging because I imagine if you are a woman who falls pregnant, you have this nine-month journey to kind of prepare for the arrival of this child. And you get a week yeah it's kind of like hey train for the olympics but you've got like six months yeah. you know go but you don't even know the sport we'll just pick one out of a hat and go for it you're now a gymnast like i could, I could yeah. just imagine that yeah so that was interesting wow um and 18 months later we adopted our daughter who didn't follow the book quite as specifically <laughs> um, there there were different types of children in this book that we had and one was an angel baby and then they had a few other ones, and one was a spirited baby. <laughs> and she was much more like me. She was a spirited baby, <laughs> and she's a spirited child, and she's the light and sparkle of our lives. Oh, but, you know, it was the yin and the yang. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I think we needed both of them to just keep it interesting. <laughs> keep it interesting. Brilliant. And so what's next for you? I mean, you said that you're sort of, 
been in a lower point professionally as a, so that you can really embrace motherhood. But what comes next? You've been writing a book. How do you, sorry, like I've written books and even people say to me, how do you fit it in? And I just say, you fit it in because you love it, that you don't even feel like you're fitting something in. It just feels like such a natural process to sit down and to write. But you've written two books, you've got two books coming out. Um, I wrote my first book when my son was a baby and he would nap for an hour and a half in the morning and while he napped I'd type Mm -hmm. and write and then he stopped napping and suddenly I couldn't write anymore because I couldn't sit still so there was a long break where I just really struggled to find a time and a place then it was in Starbucks where I'd sit with a notebook and write and I wrote pretty much my third book in Starbucks and then typed it in later and then I hit a really dry patch because what I was experiencing I couldn't write about Mm. Um, for privacy reasons for Mm -hmm. my family. Before that I'd written about what I was experiencing so I kind of went, what do I write about now? That's when I started my blog because I could Mm -hmm. write about races. And so in 2013, after I published my second book, I started blogging and I'd write race reports and, you know, where this journey was taking me. And that filled that writing niche for several years. And then I realized I'd stopped writing books because all my writing time was going to the blog and I had to go, hold on, got some books to write. I wrote my third book and it was too personal and I can't publish it. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it. I'm tweaking it. And my fourth book I finished last year, um, which is a completely different game. It's called Dog Park Days. (laughs) And it was where I was then and where I am now. I've got two dogs. And each day we take them to the dog park. And I thought, well, I can write about this. So I set it up a bit like Thomas Hardy, where there's a whole cast of characters in the village. And there's one main character, obviously is me again a little bit older and with dogs and all of the you know what's going on in the village and there's crime and there's dog thievery and there's redemption and there's a love story but it's all it's just a completely different much lighter but I think the depth is there within the destiny and redemption part of it but it's about dogs too I can't imagine that you could ever write without depth I mean depth it's just you like I just your first two books have so much substance, like that even your light, lighter side I can imagine still has so many layers that you could peel back. I'm excited. I can't wait for these next books. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I got the editing thing back from the editor, and they said I had to change it um, because the last one I wrote while my son was at soccer. Now he's he was 14 at the time, so I'd have an hour's block time at the local library while he played soccer. So I'd sit down in the library computers and type and type and type and type, and and that's how I wrote the whole book. (laughs) And I thought, oh, it's done. But in fact, I hadn't edited it. Yeah. So that's when I've gone back. So have you self-published these books? I think you had. Yeah. Yeah, when I looked. Yeah. Did you ever want to go down the full-on publishing lines? I did. Yeah. Um, So far, they've not said yes. Yeah. And in a way, I take that as a real blessing, because when I submitted the last one, I started to picture myself going into these big concrete buildings in a suit 
and having to dress a particular way and look a particular way. And it really made me panic. And I went, I don't really want somebody else telling me how to be mm. in my book launch. Mm. I want to be exactly who I am because that's authentic. Mm. And without authenticity, there's nothing, there's no depth. Mm. I don't know if I could do that with a real, a proper publisher. Yeah. I hope to one day because I feel limited in the way. Here in Australia, it's very hard to get paid in foreign countries with the currency issues. So as a self-publisher, there's a lot more work that goes on that's not writing and not promoting. Mm. And I think that makes that part of the journey hard. Mm. It'd be great to have somebody else that's up. I'll do the marketing. I'll handle the money. And, you know, you just go out and do the promotion. So that's why I'd like a publisher. Yeah. But it's, I need a publisher that would let me be me. Yes. And that that's the challenge. Yeah. Because I, I always had a dream of publishing. I think just because type A achiever, I see that as like the Olympics of sport, you know, and it's the Olympics of writing is to finally get a book out into the world and hopefully one that you just write because you want to create change, positive change, or create that spark of inspiration for someone. That, that would be my reason for it. It's not like self-promotion. But um, my recent book, my, which is a memoir, I thought maybe, maybe this is that book. And I started pitching it out into a few publishing spaces and agent spaces and just got that exact gut reaction we were talking about like no like no 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 this isn't feeling right and I think it's because like I don't yeah you you don't want to get to a point where someone says yeah but <laughs> yeah remove that part yeah because people shouldn't read that part yeah you know and I think that's it's a trade-off yeah and you have to decide what you're willing to trade and what is your heart and soul that you're not willing to trade yeah and i think because part of i can see it in you and i definitely feel it in me is part of our truth is to be able to speak the truth and i'm not saying you necessarily have to be 100 percent open about every experience but i at least want to start the conversation on topics that are often like to like a taboo topic because, like, especially when it's a memoir, yeah, you don't want someone to say, yeah, but we need to take that out because we can't talk about that. Because it happened and it's real and it's messy and it's ugly, but it's in those moments that we grow to become the person we are sitting here today. And you couldn't be the person here today if that didn't happen. So yeah. we need to talk about it. Because I know, I know just from the world, little world that I move in, that there are other people who have that experience who have had it or are going to have it or are having it right now. And they need hope as well that you can grow through it. Yeah, I think you're spot on right that your experiences, they're unique to you, but they can resonate with a whole world out there that needs to hear that story yeah. and go, ah, oh, I'm not alone. And I think when I write deep and I go, oh, gosh, this makes me really uncomfortable to write or to say or to do this. It's invariably when people say, wow, I really love that part. Yeah. And I hate going into that depth, but sometimes that's what the people need to read. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's not the bit to edit out. That's the bit to leave in. Absolutely. Yeah, and you're right. When you write it, you can feel almost physically sick, like queasy. But it's not... It's not there to say don't write about it just bottle it back in pandora's box and put the lid back on it it's about it's that that concept of shadow and like let's bring a little light to it. we don't have to spotlight it but let's just at least begin to shed a little light and have that conversation yeah because you wouldn't be sitting where you are now without who you were before yeah you know and it's funny when i meet the people who do bottle it up it's so almost comically obvious yeah. where they're kind of, I'm all great and I'm happy. And, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. and even my daughter notices and she goes, what's the matter with that person? And I, I just say, hmm. it's okay. He, he can't really express his truth. Yeah. So he behaves that way to protect himself. It's yeah. okay. Just let him be, you know, that's, oh, that's, that's, really that's who he is now. And I see it because I'm in the sports coaching world particularly and I see it in a physical manifestation of pain and injury. And um, I'd always, again, had that black and white image of injury as like, oh, that was an accident or, oh, that's because your glutes aren't strong enough and you need, you know. And, yeah, there's truth in that, but there's another layer to it. And um, it was my mentor that taught me to say, if this injury or this pain was an emotion, what emotion would it be? And then just trust that the subconscious or the unconscious mind will bring it out for you. Wow, that's a neat. And um, I've been wrestling a little with like lower back pain and I sort of thought about it and I'm like, damn, it's fear. <laughs> it's all fear. <laughs> and then you go, okay, well, if it's fear, what am I scared of? And then sometimes the answer comes straight to mind and other times it doesn't. And in this case it didn't. And so I went, why the back? Like, why the back? I'm a runner. Like, surely it's a foot or a toe or a knee or a quadricep or like, why the lower back? And I was like, what's the lower back's purpose? The lower back's purpose is stability. So then I went into my little world and I shut my eyes and I was like, where do I feel unstable? And it was like, bang. Wow. And I was like, that's what I'm meant to be dealing with. And I'm not saying the back is completely better yet, but at least it's allowing it to go on the healing <laughs> journey. It's not an instant process. And, yeah, no, no, I know. It's not. But I, I kind of really believe that now. It was the same when I broke my foot last summer. It was exactly the same experience. It didn't get better, didn't get better, didn't get better, didn't get better. And my mentor said to me, Han, what emotion is that? And um, I was guilt. And so then when I process guilt, and not saying my foot got better, it then took four weeks, but that's about the processing time that a broken bone takes to get better, four to six weeks. So four weeks later, I was able to start running again. For me, it's when I fall over. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can show you the scars of when think I wasn't quite in the right moment. So what emotion or what, what thought process were you having at that moment when you fell over or you tripped over? I think I was overthinking. I wasn't in my body i was okay. in my head so you were out of rapport yeah, yeah i was out of alignment and just kind of went here and there and everywhere and overwhelmed yeah yeah and that's it i think and as as again my mentor would say like disease 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 is being 
the conscious and unconscious mind out of rapport with one another. Mm-hmm. So the conscious mind is taking it that away, and the unconscious mind is trying to go that away. And then you go, <laughs> and then you go splat. <laughs> and then you dust yourself off, pick up the pieces, and try and put it all back together again. So, oh, thank you so much for today's conversation. I've, I don't know if you're allowed to have favorites. It's kind of <laughs> like... Probably. Well, you're my favorite podcaster. Oh, really? Oh, thank you so much for saying. I mean, I feel like every time I sit down at the table, I feel like a bit of a numpty. But I just, again, I I just keep saying to myself, like, just speak your truth, really. And sometimes they don't always resonate with you. Um, I mean, the, the topics can be interesting, but you don't necessarily find you're able to pull down all your walls and just have this cool conversation. But I just had this gut feeling I wanted to have this conversation with you um, and it was partly just from your your website, your bio, the way you communicate in the emails but when I started like doing a bit of thought process for it I was like damn I can't wait for this conversation and it's I think it's exceeded my expectations. <laughs> well, we, it's funny when you find somebody that you have so much in common with <clears throat> and you go how did that happen? Yeah. I grew up in America in this little tiny town, and here you are, and how did that happen? Yeah. But it's kind of neat. Yeah. That's one of well, the fascinating I, yeah, things. Yeah, exactly, and our journeys <laughs> began in the almost antipodes of the planet, didn't they? And we've, we've met in Melbourne, but um, I so hope we get to run on a trail together. <laughs> I have no doubt we will run on a trail together. Yeah, and I have a feeling there's something else that's going to kind of stumble our way, but um, thank you I so much. I <laughs> Alright, well, I'm all for that.